Hi there, and welcome to another Oslo podcast from the 24th annual ANZIC CTG meeting in Noosa. My name's Todd Fraser. When I first started practicing ICU, the critical care world was rocked by a pair of studies released simultaneously in the New England Journal of Medicine, which found that therapeutic hypothermia improved neurological outcomes for unconscious survivors of cardiac arrest. In the almost 20 years that have followed, several trials have produced conflicting results, culminating in the TTM2 trial released in 2021, which seems to have finally put the issue to rest. Cooling to 33 degrees Celsius is no better for patients than 37.5. Nicholas Nielsen is a professor of anaesthesia and critical care at Lund University in Sweden and is the principal investigator of the TTM2 trial. And he joins me on the podcast today to discuss what's next. Nicholas, it's an honour and a pleasure to interview you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Nicholas, you were the leading investigator on the TTM2 trial, which was released last year. It seems from your results that partnered with other um, trials in this area finally seems to indicate that active cooling to 33 degrees is of no benefit. Is that the way that you see things now? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously TTM2 is just one part in the this uh, big puzzle uh, and um, maybe it's a it's a big part um and it's actually been in combined with the evidence that we have from before in i think three or four meta-analysis that have been performed all pointing in the same direction that 33 degrees or cooling to 33 degrees doesn't seem to give that benefit that we thought uh, to start with also combining with the evidence from from the initial trials um and and I think um, that the type of cooling that we've been performing for almost twenty years now probably isn't giving us what we thought it would do. Uh, I think we p- can be pretty confident uh, with that uh, based on the TTM one and TTM two results, basically. Do you think there are any open questions around that in terms of how fast we descend people to hypothermia or the techniques that we use to do so? Yeah, I'm, I'm, that, that's a really good point. And I think that um, what how we should interpret it is that the type of cooling, uh, the way we've been uh, performing it, uh, maybe delaying start with several hours and then cooling pretty you can say slowly, but that's the way you can cool with the type of machines and equipment we have. Uh, probably is what we have been investigating and uh, having the results for. So if we could deliver cooling in a totally different way at a different time point in the resuscitation phase, um, that could uh, theoretically give other results. But we we don't have any um, any strong data to support that. So that would be based on theory and from um, animal experiments. Um, the, there are a few um, intra-rest uh, trials that have been performed, but none big enough to give any robust answers. There are signals uh, towards benefit, but I don't think we can be and anywhere near confident about that uh, as of now. That would require much more uh, trials. 
Nicholas, the other question that's commonly asked about the work that's been done so far is, is it possible that there's any particular subgroup that could potentially benefit from cooling that we haven't yet identified? Do you have a perspective on that? Yeah, I think that's the big question. These two questions are the big ones. Uh, speed of cooling, when should we initiate it, and uh, and subgroups. And if we start with the subgroups, um, we have the Hyperion trial uh, indicating possible benefit in the non-shockable group, for instance. But if we take the uh, Hyperion non-shockable group and combine it with the non-shockable groups of the TTM 1 and 2 trials, the result will be very neutral again. So I don't think that we have anything really there. It's been discussed that uh, TTM trials have a large proportion of patients that are too well to really benefit from any intervention. I don't think that is the case uh, if you really scrutinize the data. And we've actually performed subgroup analysis that we hopefully will present pretty soon from the trials. And, and they don't indicate any differentiated effect either for those with a very mild injury or those with a very severe injury. It's the same throughout the whole span. Um, the only trials that really indicate subgroup effects, they are observational uh, and biased uh, based on that. Um, physicians have given type of uh, intervention based on the severity to start with, and then that has retrospectively been uh, studied. And I don't think we can rely on that. So, so far, there is unfortunately no subgroup that I can see that could benefit. But again, I think if there is anyone that has a, a technique that could introduce cooling much, much earlier, for instance, in the intra-rest phase, as in the PRINCE trial, the PRINCESS trial, and what they tried in the KIM trial, uh, using not very efficient systems, uh, if we can look into that, I think that's... Uh, probably the only uh, feasible way forward for uh, for hypothermia. Nicholas, um, hypothermia has been uh, noted to have an effect in a preventative sense. Uh, for some decades, it's been used in aortic root surgery. There's case reports of people who have uh, been snapped frozen after falling into a frozen lake who have been successfully resuscitated, etc. Why do you think that it's been found to have uh, little, if not no, benefit in the cardiac arrest population. Yeah, I think that is really uh, the issue of uh, pre-ischemic cooling and post-ischemic cooling. And if you go to the animal literature, you can see that uh, basically all the uh, pre-ischemic cooling, if you cool before the event, you protect the brain and you can show histological pictures of that if you start to look at post ischemic uh, cooling uh, then you have to do much more statistical analysis to see an effect it's not as evident and it's diminishing the every minute you wait from the, with the start of, of the cooling so it's really pre-ischemic versus post-ischemic. And the pre-ischemic um, has been used in cardiac surgery, um, 
And uh, I think many of these case reports that we have seen, for instance, the Lancet, the famous case, the the, uh, woman that was down to 13.7 degrees, that was cooling uh, for several hours. yeah, almost an hour before the cardiac arrests uh, occurred, and, um, I th- and and I think that is also the case where you should uh, really invest time and resources in those patients that you know have the cardiac arrest with a possible pre-ischemic cooling. Um, that is probably uh, protective. It will be difficult to show it in uh, in trials. Uh, but based on what we know, I think that is the group that could uh, benefit. But when you talk about post-ischemic cooling, it's much, much more difficult because the ischemia has already happened. The reperfusion has started. Uh, and that's another ballpark. If we can start it intra-ischemically, like during the cardiac rest, that might, might uh, give a benefit, but still not proven. Um but as you know, that is difficult. Uh, it's uh, difficult to foresee a cardiac arrest, uh, and you have to be there immediately. Nicholas, I think Steve Bernard produced a paper not long ago uh, demonstrating that pre-hospital uh, hypothermia was possible and resulted in shortened times to hypothermia. Do you think that studies like the TTM trial and the scale of TTM2 need to be repeated with this as a lead-in? Ideally, I would say yes. And I know that there are uh, efforts to do this from the Stockholm group that did the PRINCESS trial. Uh, I think um, the Bernard trial um, used uh, intravenous cooling uh, with cold fluids. And I think that path might not be the most um, applicable for this group. I think we should look into other uh, interventions if we should uh, study it further. And the princess group uses uh, the nasal cooling. Uh, there are other systems. I know in France, they are looking to perfluorocarbon where they put into the lungs and, and cool uh, in that uh, very efficient way. Um, I think these trials must be done, but they should probably show signs first of signals in a smaller uh, group and then it can be expounded. It will be extremely laborsome and and difficult trials to perform. I wonder if anyone can do it in the size that's actually needed. If you look at the pre-hospital group, you should ideally include at least five, six, seven thousand patients, like in the paramedic trials uh, from the UK. Uh, it's it's a tough uh, case to to to, to do. <laughs> In your trial, uh, the TTM2 trial, um, the comparator was normothermia in the sense that patients in the control arm were kept below 37.5 degrees. The question now seems to be whether or not fever prevention can improve patient outcomes. What are the potential mechanisms that might be driving injury related to the fever? Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, uh, there's quite little done on fever. First, it's there is no uh, universal definition of what is fever. Uh, and it's a big difference between fever probably and hyperthermia. Um, 
many of the animal experiments that have been performed, they, they actually investigate hyperthermia compared to uh, normothermia, hyperthermia induced by heat chambers and uh, infrared uh, uh, radiation on the brain tissue. Um, so it's difficult to know if is that really comparable to what we think about fever in the adult patient. So uh, lots of the animal experiments are uh, maybe dif difficult to interpret. Um, uh, and if we look at clinical data, there's little done. We have the heat trial from, uh, from Australia. We have uh, other uh, trials, but it's, I think it's around two, 3,000 patients uh, randomized to fever control versus standard care throughout all uh, indications so it's, it's it's a very meager data set we have to to say anything about if fever is treatable if it's causing an uh, uh, deleterious uh, effects we, we basically have no idea i would say uh, we have performed a meta-analysis uh, again uh, paul young have has done that before uh, and we have done a new one indicating the same that there is uh, quite neutral results with fever management compared to no uh, standardized fever management um, now we have introduced based on the TTM2 trial control group uh, fever management as a recommendation for cardiac arrest patients uh, but I, I think for the first time guidelines have really highlighted that this is based on low certainty evidence and that this must be um, investigated in a large cohort of patients before it can be something that we say is universally good for our patients. And that's why we performed the next step here. It's, it's a little bit backwards. We work our way backwards from something that we thought was good, 33, and now we gradually going upwards um, so in in our next trial we will actually compare standard type icu fever management as you would do for any uh, patient compared to strict fever management where we aim for uh, normothermia using devices so that brings us to the step care trial um it's yeah. got a a not complex, but an interesting design to it. Um, could you tell us about the background to how you ended up with this design and what that design involves? Yeah, uh, uh, to start with, we, we already knew that when we designed the TTM2 trial, we would have this uh, uh, remaining knowledge gap if it would be neutral or if it had shown benefit of the control group. So the only the only result from the TTM2 trial that could have ended up with a recommendation that was firm would be that 33 was better. But we would have this uh, outstanding knowledge gap whether the control arm type uh, intervention uh, from TTM2 had an effect. Since we didn't have a, a control group where we didn't do anything, we should ideally, from an academic standpoint, have had that. But that was impossible. Um, so we we said that we had that um, in 
uh, as a background knowledge all the time. So when we had the results from GTN2, we basically immediately started to think about this trial. We started to look at the sample size needed and would be a 3,000 plus trial. So quite large. And then we thought, should we only answer one question with that large uh, trial? And uh, inspired by the uh, collaboration with the TAME trial, for instance, we said, let's put in uh, another intervention as well. And the second one that's also mentioned in the guidelines, uh, as we all know, has been part of uh, the package when we give TTM uh, is the sedation. So we thought that we, we combined these two in a two-by-two two design. But at the same time, we also discussed uh, with the Marcus Grievers group in Helsinki, and they were planning a large mean arterial pressure trial. So we said all of these three interventions are uh, part of, uh, of of the package for the TTM, for the cardiac arrest patient. And they're quite standard for an ICU to perform. So we thought it, that it would not be impossible for an ICU of a, of a certain standard to, to do a two by three trial or three by two trial, producing eight groups. Uh, so you uh, give either low or high mean arterial pressure, short or long sedation, or uh, strict normothermia versus standard care. Um, so we, we're expanding a little bit from the temperature focus, uh, but we think it's feasible and it is um, will be a, a results that will be easy to interpret in the end. Nicholas, with that sort of design, does it give you the ability to examine the interactions between those therapies? Yeah, uh, we will absolutely look into that, but... As anyone knows that um, has read about interaction, it's a, it's a complex area, and uh, uh, all analysis of interactions are likely underpowered. Uh, you probably would need at least four times the sample size to be sure. So uh, we've said that if there is no evidence of interaction, like uh, we could demonstrate in the T. TTM2 versus TAME uh, analysis. I mean, I think the p-value was 0 0.9, something like that. If it's it's if it's no uh, indication of any signal of interaction, we will say that it is likely no interaction. But if we see signals, we definitely need to uh, uh, look into that in a new trial afterwards. Um, but I also think that we, taking all these together, we reflect what is happening in the in the units when we treat the patients. I think it's also a quite pragmatic approach to to the research questions. Nicholas, um, I believe the intent is to release each of those domains as separate research papers in their own right, and each has been given its own name. I understand with the uh, the temperature control. Uh, paper being referred to as TTM3 at this stage, I understand. Yeah. What will the intervention in that study uh, represent? Yeah, the intervention group will uh, be the control group of TTM2. Uh, so strict normothermia using uh, 
the equipment we have to achieve that. Uh, surface devices, intervascular devices, that will be up to the to the unit. Uh, but we will um, um, we'll reinforce that quite strict protocol that we'll probably will end up with approximately 50% of patients receiving a device. Um, so the same trigger, 37.78, uh, when the patient goes up to there, we introduce fever management to keep the patient at 37.5 or below. Uh, the other group will have standard ICU care uh, in regards of fever management. The, what you would do with any other ICU patient. I think that will likely differ between sites. But uh, I'm, for instance, in, in my unit, for any other patient, we uh, would uh, start thinking about fever therapies uh, using medications if a patient goes about 39.5. I know some units have 40 as a threshold. Um, basically based on very little evidence, but uh, standard care, I would say, not using devices in that group. Nicholas, how do you maintain separation in a study like this? Is there a risk that the control arm will slowly drift towards the intervention arm? Yeah, I think first you have to uh, discuss with sites, uh, as we've done in TTM 1 and 2, to, to see that the site has equipoise for doing the trial um, you have to present scenarios in this type of patient would you give what kind of intervention would you give uh, for fever management to, to see that they have equipoise for uh, answering the research question um, I think it mm, I think after a few patients that's our experience from the earlier trials is that you stop thinking about uh, the actual intervention uh, you just you just do it as part of the protocol and um, it's, um, it's been the same issues both for the first and the second TTM trial that the what we call the control arm is the ethically difficult uh, arm for some sites but you know, just a, a quite short period it's that has vanished as a problem. I think the a larger problem, or maybe not a problem, but the larger risk of having the arms look very much the same is that I don't think that that many patients will develop a high fever. That's my um, quite firm belief. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have very strong observational data on this it's the last 20 years we haven't seen these patients we haven't seen the natural uh, trajectory of fever in cardiac arrest patients and we cannot observe that today either we can't do an observational trial to see what is the magnitude of fever in cardiac arrest patients since no one is allowing it to happen uh, but um, i know that there will be some data coming out from finland that we can uh, learn a little bit more from but my my feeling is that I don't think that we will have a large majority of patients having fever afterwards. So um, it might be that the standard arm will not look very much different from the very control arm. 
Nicholas, in um, TTM2, one of the standout features was the use of prognostication. Can you walk us through why that was so important to the structure of the TTM2 trial and now subsequent trials such as StepCare? And can you explain how it will work? Yeah, I think um, for all types of ICU trials uh, where we make decisions on uh, continued life support or withdrawal of life support. Uh, and if you have an unblinded in, uh, intervention, it's always a risk of uh, introducing bias. I think it's probably less than we believe, but there is still room for uh, possible bias. So you have to be very strict um, when it comes to rules for when uh, to uh, continue support or withdraw support. Uh, and it's for cardiac arrest patients, it's also a very important ethical issue when to, to make these decisions. Uh, we have we were very conservative in uh, TTM1 with five days to uh, the prognostication in TTM2. We had 96 hours, four days, still quite conservative. This, uh, the the material that we and others have gathered the last couple of years have ended up in the European Resuscitation Council and the ESICM guidelines um, that uh, we will use as the mainstay in the step care project as well. So we will basically follow uh, the guidelines that are out there and um, also perform an observational uh, prognostication study within the larger project. Uh, um, so I think the, the idea of a very strict uh, let's say framework for uh, prognostication is important. And then the other thing that's important is that neuroprognostication and withdrawal of life support is not the same thing. It's sometimes mixed up when you talk about it, but the neuroprognostication is one uh, very important step. The next step is what to do with that information, continue support or withdrawal support. It doesn't necessarily have to be the same. Nicholas, it was an honour and a privilege to be able to interview you today. Thanks so much for your time and joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes, and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps, or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.